This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. First Draft is now in its seventh year and recently lost its funding. So I'm turning to you, my listeners, and asking for your support to keep this podcast going. So far, nearly 250 authors have been featured on First Draft talking about their work and their craft. It takes time and money to produce this podcast, to purchase the software, host the audio, and create the show. At patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters, you can provide much-needed support for the show that makes a difference in keeping it on the air. I want to tell you I strongly believe that having these conversations is not just an insightful look into our literary landscape, but they are acts of empathy every time we dive into a writer's work, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is what it means to be alive here and now in the world we all share. I believe dialogue is what we often lack in many realms of our society, and I hope in some way this podcast is contributing to the conversation. So consider that your donation supports over three hours a month of deep conversation about craft and literature and what it means to reflect on our human experience. Please take a stake in these conversations by supporting their creation. There are various levels of support, and each one comes with extras like cuts that didn't make it into the show, writing tips, and even books. The first tier is just $6 a month. So please take a minute to go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash firstdraftwriters. And please contribute to what we are creating together. I couldn't do it without you. And also please rate the show on iTunes and tell at least one friend to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest is novelist Dinao Mangestu, author of three novels called The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears, How to Read the Air, and all our names. Mangestu was born in Ethiopia and moved to America when he was two. His novel, All Our Names, has two storylines. One takes place in Uganda in the early 1970s and highlights the relationship between the main character Isaac and a new friend as they explore their political identity amidst the upheaval of a post-colonial country. The other storyline takes place in the Midwest, where Isaac flees to safety and falls in love with his social worker, Helen. Isaac's past and post-civil rights America haunt the narrative in Isaac and Helen's relationship. One of the central questions of the novel is how well can we know anyone? The novel opens with the narrator, who has 13 names, giving them all up as he travels from Ethiopia to Uganda to start a new life. We began the discussion talking about the title and the significance of shedding given names. I hope that it does double duty. You know, there's the the narrator's desire to sort of shed all of these names that he inherits from his family. To some degree, I think that's a very um, kind of like romantic idea that we imagine for ourselves as young people when we're trying to reinvent ourselves. We imagine that we can kind of cast the past aside and come to a new country and reinvent ourselves as the person or the woman or man that we wish we had been or want to be. Um, and I think there's, you know, there's something very kind of positive and optimistic about that perspective, about that idea that we are essentially kind of like can make our own freedom and can make our way in the world and, and then unburden, unburden ourselves from the past. Um, and at the same time, I think there's also this great loss that comes with that for some of the characters. There's the sense that like by uprooting themselves, by detaching themselves from all the things that have made them who they are, they're now kind of cast free and are alone and sort of swimming in this void. So as much as possible, I think the narrative 
um, tries to kind of play with both of those ideas at the same time. You know, there is this narrator who um, who is kind of mysterious and who doesn't have a real name until finally he accepts the one that's been given to him. And then there are the people around him who are deeply rooted to the communities and the places that they've been. There's his best friend who is who could only be Isaac for him. Like, this is the name that his parents passed on to him, and because they've, they've passed away, this is the only identity he wants to have. Um, but I do like the idea that um, that our identities are sort of these complicated things. You know, we tend to think of ourselves as having been formed and shaped by one place or by one community. And I think as we grow older and as we evolve, we we end up adding multiple strands and layers to who we are. And so oftentimes when people ask us, well, you know, especially for somebody who has a different name or an accent, they say, well, where are you from? Um, and there oftentimes might not be an easy answer to that. And, and just trying to sort of reflect that through the names becomes, a, was, I think, you know, sort of um, deliberate intent of the novel. And do you think that's a, a, a cross-cultural thing? I mean, do you think that's more important in Africa than here, or do you think it supersedes borders? Well, I, th- I think it's more important here in America than anywhere else. I think, um, by and large, we're a country that's sort of made up of all these diverse narrative strands of all these diverse histories. And the fact that we can kind of shed those those historical antecedents and come come together under the thread of an American identity is possible only because this identity is predicates or is, is is dependent upon the idea that um, you can sort of leave the past behind and subsume yourself under this larger national identity of being American. Um, but I think Americans are, are, if anything, more attuned to the possibilities in having multiple strands and multiple histories. We all come from somewhere else. We all have ties and links to other places. Um, and I think sometimes it's important to want to recognize those things and to acknowledge that they are part of our sort of great diversity and part of our great cultural heritage, that we don't have to feel obliged to one sort of monolithic identity and one monolithic sense of what it means to be American. Being American can sort of contain multitudes and should contain multitudes. So your narrator, when he comes to Uganda, becomes sort of a dissident of the government you know, he's kind of bookish and wants to be a writer, and he sort of falls into this dissidence through going to hang out at the university. Do you think that was the the, the desire to sort of make a statement against the society you were in and the injustices was in him, or do you think that was really influenced by the friend that he met? I think I think for him it was much more influenced by, by the person that he met. I think... Um, you know, I think in certain moments of real political crisis, it's very hard not to align yourself with one side or the other. You know, in the early 1970s and, you know, even like 1968 across Europe and across America, it was really hard not to have, um, not to find yourself forced to choose different political positions. And for some people who, who don't necessarily have one strong opinion or another, they oftentimes are kind of led by the people closest to them. And I think what's more important for the narrator, rather than choosing X side versus Y side, um, it's feeling like he's uh, like he's actually able to witness what's happening. That he's somehow more that he's an observer, but more than just a passive passive observer. And this friend comes along um, and grab, gives him something to hold on to. You know, he gives him a friendship, he gives him love, and he offers him some to be the semblance of community that says, "Okay, at least here for now, you can belong." Um, and I think oftentimes that supersedes any real political intent or political desire it becomes the, the ability to belong and be in a community with others. Did you know from the beginning when you were thinking about writing this that you wanted the main character to be an outsider, both when he comes to America, but also in 
Uganda. I mean, he's Ethiopian and he crosses the border. Was that something that you designed on purpose? Um, it's, I think it's something that I'm always drawn to. You know, I think most of I tend to, to write with characters that are that are slightly on the margins, and um, and that's a nice place to write from. I think for me as a writer, because you get to create characters who whose primary who do things, but whose primary function is to sort of watch the world around them. Um, and I do, you know, that is obviously something I think what writers are, are guilty of is that we. We spend a lot of our energy and time um, looking out the windows and, and trying to recreate and reconstruct and, re- and imagine worlds and realities that, we are, that we're not always involved in. Um, but especially with fictional characters, it's great because you can set this entire world in motion and you can have a character who's a part of that world, who's a part of all those um, complex political imaginations and the violence and the love that comes with them. And at the same time, the character can kind of watch those things closely for you. They can, they can slow down... Um, and restructure and reorganize all of these events in ways that hopefully allow the reader to to walk through them a little bit more quietly and with a little bit more depth than if they were suddenly dropped into the middle of all these actions that um, that they'd never experienced before. In the novel, the narrator Isaac, a black African, goes to the Midwest and he is assigned a white social worker, Helen, who he falls in love with. They have very different lives and Isaac can't express what he's been through. In the current situation, they face racism when they're out together. Can you talk about this aspect of the storyline? Um, you know, I mean, so, some of that definitely has just direct ties to my own family's experience. You know, I mean, we left we left Ethiopia and came to Peoria, Illinois, which is you know a fairly smallish town in the middle of America where there weren't that many African migrants. Um, and of course, I, I was really young and, and have no real memories of the, of the difficulties or challenges of assimilation. Um, but I did, and I'm, I'm sort of always compelled to try to imagine what that experience must have been like for not only my parents, but for you know many other um, migrants who had come from Africa and ended up in these small towns where no one else like them had ever existed before. Um, and part of that desire was, of course, you know, to try to interrogate your own history. Um, but also to remember that the you know the people that had raised me and that I was quite close to growing up, um, what it must have been like from their perspective to have this family arrive, um, and so Helen's voice, perhaps maybe more than anything, was a chance to try to tell the the idea of of a migrant narrative from another perspective, not from the point of view of the person who has to leave home, but the story of the person who is at home and has to accept or reject this person who's just washed up on their shores. So this complicated and, and challenging love story that begins to develop um, between Isaac and Helen is, is partly that, you know, what do you do when somebody um, who seems so different from you comes into your community, comes into your town, and how do you begin to figure out how you can understand one another? How do you begin to communicate all the great differences and divides in history and in culture that separate you um, when you don't necessarily always have the language to do so? And by language, I don't mean that they don't speak English, but that they don't have the same base of experiences from which to begin to understand one another. And so Isaac, in his reluctance to telling Helen what he's gone through and what he's what he's lived through, um, is as much a part of 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 his own mistrust that she's going to be able to understand him as the sense that like their world seems so opposed, so different from the world that he's known. Um, how can he possibly begin to make space for her in his life? And, and for her, the same questions are equally true. How can she begin to sort of make room for him in, in her life in America um, for them to actually live in, in a more public way and a more public space? 
The novel flashes back and forth between Isaac's life in the Midwest and his involvement with the dissident movement in Uganda. And one of the things you captured so well was the visceral feeling and fear involved in this group he joins in Africa that is fighting the government. Tell me about writing those scenes and your insight into that general behavior. One of the few things that I've been fortunate to do as, as a writer is, is kind of travel across Africa um, since since my first novel and 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 spend time with different um, you know revolutionary movements or liberation movements or, or rebel armies depending on how you class, classify them and and I've always noticed that there is this sort of you know there's this both um, idealistic strain that runs underneath a lot of these movements under a lot of these sort of revolutionary uh, groups of young men who are trying to overthrow their government or trying to just achieve a better condition for their communities. Um, and at the same time, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and anxiety, and, and as you said, secrecy, because um, people are sort of afraid, and oftentimes people are being manipulated, and people are, are aren't um, they lose they begin to lose some control over what's real and what's not real. You know, there's a, there's an absence of clarity, there's an absence of moral clarity, definitely. Whereas sometimes you begin to wonder if the stories you're being told are actually the stories that are actually really taking place out there, and so. You live in um, the sort of swirl and, to some degree, at times, state of weird suspended anxiety where you're not necessarily, you don't feel secure, but at the same time, um, you are seduced and, and and compelled by the ideas being promised, by the ideals of a better country or of a better conditions or of a better place. So this dissident movement is holed up in a nice neighborhood in the city, and at one point you wrote... A secret meeting was held that afternoon, and it was agreed that the city should go back to the way it had been before. But by then, no one could remember what the city had looked like. The buildings had been moved, street names were changed, the man who ran the grocery store on the busy intersection had vanished. There was another problem as well. When asked to describe what the city looked like now, no one could say for certain if Avenue Marcel and Independence Boulevard still intersected, if the French cafe owned by a Mr. Scipion had closed or more merely moved to a different corner. So you're talking about how it's been years since people had looked at the city closely, and it seemed to me that when you're under siege, trauma trumps memory. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, within that passage you just read, that that is also, it's, it's the narrator recounting a sort of fable that his father had told him about these cities that can... Um, that can sort of that that disappear when no one's around to sort of remember them, and it becomes a sort of extended metaphor for what happens inside of a country when when people stop being active participants in their countries, when people stop paying attention to the communities and to the politics that they're sort of living in, when when we all are responsible and culpable for the worlds and the countries that we live in, and when we fail to sort of recognize, when we fail to sort of see and pay attention to the small changes that our governments are inflicting upon our our, our countries, upon our streets, upon our communities, um, then those cities become they they change, they become something else, and. And it's very easy to wake up one day and wonder, well, what happened to the country that I knew? What happened to the place that I grew up in? Um, as if it was some sort of mysterious evolution, as if something had just suddenly miraculously happened overnight. When in fact, that those changes oftentimes happen incrementally. They happen when um, when we stop caring, when we stop believing that we are um, we are called to do more than just sort of live in in, in sort of passive acceptance of our realities. And so. I, I do think you know part of what what violence does in those communities is um, 
as it tries to sort of um, suppress the possibility of remembering things. You know, it wants to sort of it wants to obliterate the past to some degree. It wants to sort of press upon you the immediacy of what's happening now, so that way you can't maintain that same form of of, of longing for these places that that no longer are. At the novel's conclusion, a central question is if these two people can stay together, if their lives are so different, as well as if their secrets from one another are so big. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely, you know, I'd say there's, um, I'd say, you know, it, it, it has a, a sort of parallel, right? So it's like the sort of secrets that, that Isaac lives within, um, that he keeps, you know, sort of from from Helen. Um, but it's also, you know, how do you live together as a couple if you don't have a public life, you know, that seems to be the sort of parallel idea to that. So how do you, can, can sort of men and women continue to sort of fall in love and actually consider themselves together if they're afraid to walk outside and hold hands, if they're afraid to go to a restaurant together and order and have lunch at the same time, you know, that idea that the interior lives that you live need to have some form of public expression in order to be real, in order to actually feel like they're plausible, um, has its parallel equivalent in the sort of interior life that Isaac lives until he can actually kind of make a public expression of that to Helen, until he can say, this is who I am, this is what I've gone through. Their relationship doesn't hold much chance of of sort of enduring, um, but it also is equally true that their relationship couldn't endure if they can't find a way of actually being able to step outside together. If they can't actually say, let's walk down the street together and, 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 um, and not pay attention or not care what happens to us. Let's be able to say we love each other um, in, in a space other than our bedroom. So tell me about your influences. Can you read a passage from a writer, author that speaks to you? So I was going to read a passage from one of my favorite writers, um, Kazumi Shiguro, and it's a novel. It's one of his best, The Remains of the Day. Um, and it's a novel I've read many, many times, and part of it's because it's um, it's a story that's told in such great, remarkable restraints. And oftentimes we, we try to create characters who are... Um, or more expressive, more more emotive, who allow the readers in. And this novel um, has a character who keeps all of his emotions so deeply controlled and so deeply reserved. And he does it for almost the entire length of the novel until finally there's this exquisite little heartbreaking passage. Um, and then that heartbreak is even com- is compounded even more when we realize the narrator is going to return back to this cloistered and confined self. And so... Um, this happens, um, this little passage is from the, near the very end of the novel. It is now some 20 minutes since the man left, but I have remained here on this bench to await the event that has just taken place, namely, the switching on of the pure lights. As I say, the happiness with which the pleasure seekers gathering on this pier greeted at this small event would tend to vouch for the correctness of my companion's words. For a great many people, the evening is the most enjoyable part of the day. Perhaps, then, there is something to his advice that I should cease looking back so much, that I should adopt a more positive outlook and try to make the best of what remains of my day. After all, what can we ever gain in forever looking back and blaming ourselves if our lives have not turned out quite as we might have wished? The hard reality is, surely, that for the likes of you and me, there is little choice other than to leave our fate ultimately in the hands of those great gentlemen at the hub of this world who employ our services. What is the point in worrying oneself too much about one about what one could do or could not have done to control the course one's life took? Surely it is enough that the likes of you and me 
at least try to make a small contribution, count for something true and worthy. And if some of us are prepared to sacrifice much in life in order to pursue such aspirations, surely that is in itself, whatever the outcome, cause for pride and contentment. What's what's lovely is that the uh, at, at near the very end of the novel, just when you when you imagine this man has made this this um, this breakthrough in his understanding about how how um, how much he's lost, how much he's sacrificed, and not being able to actually take charge over his own life. Suddenly, at the very end, he 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 reverts back into this sort of same flawed way of thinking. He tries to offer this um, this sort of final consolation to himself for all the things that he's given up, for all the things, for all the relationships that he's missed out on, for all the life that he's failed to actually live by saying, "Well, um, actually, he was actually really all okay. There's nothing else that I could have done." And so, as the reader, you're sitting there, um, your heart is actually breaking once more for him because you realize that that he probably you don't even know if he really believes that or if he feels like this is the story he has to tell himself in order to survive. Um, this is the narrative that he's begun. And when he tries to break out of that narrative, he has to go back to the same storyline because he doesn't know how else he's going to make it in the, in the world. So um, it's just a, a, a beautiful novel and a lovely ending to it. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Dinal Mangestu, author of the novel All Our Names. Can you read something that you wrote that was hard to write or something that you rewrote a lot to get right or just something that you like? Um, yeah, so this was um, this was a passage early on actually in All Our Names that um, was probably the passage that I had to rewrite the most um, and meaning that I must have certain months alone just writing it. And it's, um, it's when the narrator and Helen, um, they go to a diner for lunch because Helen wants to, wants to see what happens when the two of them step out in public together. And they are um, they're quietly discriminated against. Helen's food is brought out on a normal plate and Isaac's food is brought out on these um, paper plates. So, so that way he knows he's not really welcome inside of this community and welcome inside of this restaurant. You know, it's one of those things where you try to figure out how does, um, how do our anxieties about race play out in ways that are different from what they would have been in the 1950s and 60s? And it's trying to figure out how the small gestures between um, between people become evident of the way they see each other and the way they feel each other. How do we begin to point out all the different divisions in our communities? We don't necessarily name them anymore. We don't say, well, I don't like you because of the color of your skin, because of the way you think, or because of what your beliefs are. But I express that... Um, in, in more subtle ways, in ways that let you know that you are not a part of this culture or a part of this community. And so um, I had to rewrite this part um, constantly to try to figure out the right, the right balance between, um, between those desires, between the quietness that I wanted to happen and uh, the sort of pain that you wanted to know is going to be inflicted on the characters as a result of that. This is being narrated by Helen, and she's noting that um, Isaac's food has just arrived. Isaac had finished his omelet by the time my order arrived on standard cream-colored plates used for everyone other than him. The waitress tried to walk away quickly, but I grabbed her wrist and told her I wanted to cancel my order. Tell Bill that I don't want to eat here, I said. The poor child. She's struggling not to cry. We didn't make it any easier on her. Leave the plate, Isaac said. We're going to stay and eat it. She hurried back to the kitchen. I stared at the plate of chicken and mashed potatoes and blinked twice, childishly hoping I could make it vanish. Please, I said to Isaac, let's leave now. 
He shook his head no. Not until we both finished our lunch, he said. That's what you wanted, isn't it? If that was Isaac's way of settling the score, then I thought I could play along just as well. For the next ten minutes, I slowly took my food apart. With my first half-hearted stab into the chicken, all the momentum was gone. There was nothing we could change. I felt a regression back to my mother's kitchen table, where I'd spent many nights and afternoons laboring to finish a meal that my father had never shown up for and that my, my, and that my mother had refused. I had always known that there was something cruel in her insistence that I eat every bite on my plate while my father's food cooked next to me. She needed a victim besides herself, and when I finally looked up at Isaac after a few minutes and saw him smiling at me, I knew there was something slightly cruel lurking in his gaze. I was too busy, though, creating a new story to linger on that thought. And in this story, Isaac and I were still heroes. The fact that we were willing to sit there and linger when every part of me wanted to run was proof of the great sacrifices we were willing to make. When we left the restaurant and were back in the car, Isaac said to me, Now you know. This is how they break you. Slowly. In pieces. So where do you write? I think most of this book was written in Paris. We had a lovely apartment, um, and then right next door to our apartment, there's a little studio apartment that became my office. And so it was, it was the most ideal place where I could walk my children to school in the morning, open my door, walk across the hallway to another little tiny apartment, um, and actually have my desk right there. So most of this novel was written um, in that little studio and then in a coffee shop in a little cafe not too far away from my house in the evenings. And um, and now these days, um, since we moved back to America, back to New York, um, writing takes place um, either downstairs in, in our living room late at night, um, often in the kitchen while everyone's asleep, or or occasionally very early in the morning, just right in bed as soon as I wake up. I, I sometimes just reach over, pick up my computer, um, and start trying to write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I cook. So um, one of my favorite things used to be um, if, if I had spent the whole day working and, and working well, um, then I knew it was time to stop and I could begin trying to think about what I would make for dinner. And so um, in, in France, it was great. I'd leave my office and go walking up the street and spend the next hour going through my little different grocery stores and buying my meat and my vegetables and my wine and my cheeses. And then um, and then normally coming back home and, and having friends over for dinner. We used to have... Um, friends for dinner three or four nights out of the week, and that would oftentimes be the the best way to kind of get out of your head. You start doing something physical, you're in the kitchen by yourself, you're, you still feel like you're creating something with your hands, which is, I think, really nice. Um, but at the same time, your, your brain is able to release some of the sort of tension that comes with writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I, I hold on to it for a really long time now. Um, my wife will get this. My wife will get a copy um, about the exact same time that I give it to my agent. Um, sometimes I'll give her um, little snippets here and there beforehand, um, but oftentimes I've learned that it's um, if I'm not really settled with it, and if I give it to somebody else beforehand, then it's hard for me to keep writing because I spend all my time worrying about what I just gave someone to read, even if it's my wife. I'm still aware of the fact that I gave her something too early or something that's so deeply flawed that all I can do is begin to, to linger on all the flaws that are already there rather than trying to, to move on to the next page or the next chapter. Um, so now I, I tend to wait until um, 
until it's as good as it can be for that particular moment in time. I know there's still more work to be done, but to some degree, like you kind of have to stop and let somebody else in um, to tell you that it's not completely crazy, or maybe that it is completely crazy and that you've made terrible mistakes all along, and you have to figure out how to how to solve those. And how have you dealt with rejection? I tend to to curl up and and not talk about it and feel incredibly wounded. Um, for long periods of time until I can eventually um, put it out of my mind. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. I don't. I think writing always, you always feel exposed, um, and I'm not sure that ever really stops. And I think, you know, for me, one of the nice things about needing at least three or four years between, between each book is that I need that much time to sort of forget how much anxiety and how much frustration goes into the process of putting something out into the world and feeling like you know it's going to be rejected definitely by someone and maybe by many people. Um, you need to kind of forget that possibility to some degree in order to in order to want to expose yourself to doing that again. And what is your favorite word? Um, solipsistic. Cause, probably just because it sounds great. Um, it has a nice sort of rhythm, solipsistic. Um, and two, it's um, you know, it's kind of what you what you try very hard to avoid while you're writing. It's a sort of tension when you're writing. You're isolated. You're by yourself. Um, you do it to the exclusion, oftentimes, of the of the world around you. Um, and it can oftentimes feel rather solipsistic, but at the same time, you're it's the last the thing you're probably trying the hardest to avoid in your writing when you're actually really hoping to communicate with something else and someone else and with an audience out there. You're they're trying to make sure that your work is does not come off like that, and so it is the um, it is the word that lingers in the back of my my mind while writing as a warning. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Dinao Mangestu, author of the novel All Our Names. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft Radio Show and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft A D O W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. Please take a moment to support First Draft and contribute to keeping the program alive at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. There are plenty of extras for becoming a member, and your donations help to keep the dialogue going. I know you might be listening in your car or when you're on the run, but please consider coming back to your computer at some point and donating to First Draft. That's patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting First Draft. I'm Mitzi Rapkin.